Welcome back to the Fitz News Studio, the new Fitz News Studio for another edition of Your Week in Review. A ton of stuff to cover this week, people. Judges. The word of the week is judges. We are going to dig into the latest on the judicial scandals here in South Carolina and how they interplay and interweave with the Murdoch murders crime and corruption saga, particularly the corruption part of that. We're also going to dive into a scandal involving one of the powerful lawyer legislators who always seems to be at the heart of that corruption. Well, guess what? That lawmaker under investigation. We reported on it exclusively. We're going to dive into that in more detail on this show. And last but not least, the debate over abortion in South Carolina. I thought it was over. Apparently, I was wrong. But we're going to dive into that story and focus on a story we posted this week, which provided the perspective of female leaders in South Carolina. Again, their perspectives, I believe, should be front and center on that debate. We're going to talk about why in this episode. All that and more coming your way on the Week in Review. So from the beginning of our coverage of the Murdoch murders, crime, and corruption saga, we have been focused on the corruption. And over the last few weeks, as this story has continued to unfold, we have been focused more on that corruption angle. Because again, this scandal didn't happen in a vacuum. Sure, it's about the Murdochs, their conduct, but the graphic homicides that stem from that conduct. But it's also about the system that enabled them, the judges. And as I talked last week about this latest chapter in the scandal, I spoke about the need for accountability as it related to some of those judges who enabled the Murdoch Institution in the South Carolina Low Country. And lo and behold, not calling myself a prophet, but just days after we aired that episode, an exclusive report on Fitz News about accountability for those judges, about the federal investigation and the state investigation, into the conduct of those judges, the public corruption side of the Murdoch story, which again has not been told, but which is essential, essential to getting justice for the victims, and more importantly, to keeping this sort of institutional malfeasance from happening to others in the future. Now, we talked about some of these judges. Folks know their names. Carmen Mullen, Perry Buckner, these judges very close with the Murdoch, so we've heard those names. But as we began to dig deeper into where the state and the feds are with this public corruption probe, we heard a lot of other names, people. Other judges linked higher up the chain, not just circuit court judges, people. We're talking about judges potentially on the appeals court, potentially on the Supreme Court. So when you hear hear that expression, this goes all the way to the top, well, guess what? The corruption side of the Murdoch saga, according to our sources anyway, who are very close to these investigations, It goes all the way to the top. Now, how do we know that? And more importantly, how do the feds know that? Well, one of the big theories out there right now is that Alec Murdoch is singing like a canary, that he is providing information that is pointing the feds, pointing the state, but mostly the feds, because again, Murdoch wants to cooperate with those federal prosecutors more than the state prosecutors, but that Murdoch himself is the one leading investigators down some of these avenues. And of course, who would have receipts as to judicial corruption, more than Alec Murdoch. He's probably got a prison jumpsuit full of them, people. But as this story unfolded, there was a metric ton of Murdoch news that broke last week. And I've, I've talked about Murdoch fatigue and about wanting to move resources to other important stories. But this thing keeps drawing people back in. It keeps sucking you back into the story. And this week, several big developments. I want to start with what you're going to see on television, Fox Nation dropped a big Murdoch documentary this week 
featuring, believe it or not, Alec Murdoch. Now, wait a minute. Once you go behind bars in the South Carolina Department of Corrections, you're not supposed to be able to give interviews, are you? Well, no, you're not. But Murdoch got that out apparently through his lawyer. Murdoch was actually sanctioned by the Department of Corrections behind bars for violating their rules regarding interviewing, uh, given his participation in that Fox Nation documentary. But Fox Nation is the only one that dropped. Netflix, they did the big one, the three-part episode that launched during the murder trial earlier this year. They're dropping another three-part episode. So be on the lookout for that in the next few months. Again, the international audience for this story just continues, continues to exist, to grow. People continue to be addicted to this story. But as that process unfolds on the, on the screen, on those documentaries, on those subscription channels, there are also major developments happening with the case, particularly with Murdoch's appeal. And we saw a tease of that this week when his attorney, Jim Griffin, appeared on Chris Cuomo's show on News Nation and talked about allegations of improprieties involving the jury. And this was the first time we've heard anything about this. We don't know yet whether it's related to the appeal. It sounds like it's tied to the appeal. But we do know that according to Griffin, unprecedented, unprecedented outside influence on the Murdoch jury. Now, if they are able to document this, watch out, people. This could be huge. All of a sudden, all the machinations we've been seeing regarding Murdoch's state and federal financial crimes, these come into play in a huge way if there is any inkling that those murder convictions could be on shaky ground. We're going to continue to follow this very closely. We have been able to confirm. Sources at the South Carolina State House have confirmed Dick Harputlin and Jim Griffin have sought time for a press conference this coming Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, outside the South Carolina Court of Appeals. So obviously all eyes will be on that press conference, and we will certainly be there to cover it. Anything we learn on that, obviously, we'll bring it to you, and certainly we'll be talking about that a lot on next week's show. But as we look to the future of the Murdoch saga, I want to, again, remind folks how integrally interconnected it is with the broader justice, injustice system here in South Carolina. We've been talking about these judges. We've been talking about the interconnectivity. And we saw another example of that this week with an exclusive report we filed on another suspicious attorney death down in the South Carolina Low Country. And I'm referring, of course, to the story of David Ayler. Now, David Ayler, prominent Charleston attorney. This is a guy who represented some incredibly powerful people, including Richard Quinn, the godfather of Republican politics here in South Carolina. Ayler repped him in his big corruption trial. So just an incredibly influential attorney with all sorts of connections to judges here in the Palmetto State. Well, Ayler died tragically. January 2nd of this year, an overdose attributed to fentanyl. Now, at the time, what we didn't know was that there was a federal investigation that morphed out of the Charleston City investigation into Ayler's death, particularly where did the fentanyl come from? That's what the feds wanted to know. And in their efforts to find out where that fentanyl came from, they got a hold of Ayler's cell phone. And as they began searching through that phone in an effort to find the source of the fentanyl that killed him, well, they found some other things. And according to our sources, that phone has become a key piece of evidence in, guess what, another corruption investigation 
involving South Carolina judges and our judicial system. Where's it going? We don't know. Right now, that phone belonging to Attorney Ayler is at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Florence, South Carolina. There is a special master that's watching over that to make sure that no attorney-client materials are improperly disclosed. But this is a major development because, once again, we've got feds looking in to state judges. And as I've also reported, we've got conflict between the feds and the state over who's going to take the lead in those cases. And I want to say something about that real quick. I know all the prosecutors involved in these cases at the state level, at the federal level. It is time for these prosecutors to get on the same page. It is time for them to start working together for common aims, accountability for all of those who are involved in these scandals. But as we talk about these judges, as we talk about these different investigations into judicial conduct here in South Carolina, I want to point something out because this is not happening again in a vacuum. We are seeing rulings that are just completely, completely inexcusable, unacceptable, violative of the oaths of these judges that they took when they promised to uphold the law fairly and blindly. But I want to give you another example of, of, of how justice is not blind in the Palmetto State. And it comes, again, from Charleston, South Carolina, Circuit Court Judge Bentley Price. If you've watched this show in the past, you know this guy loves to dole out lenient sentences and generous bonds to violent offenders. He loves to enable violent crime in South Carolina. I hate saying that, but that's what he does. By refusing and failing to hold violent criminals accountable for their actions, Bentley Price is incentivizing crime in the South Carolina low country. And we saw another example of that very recently. And I'm talking about the case. This is a case that anybody who re- who watches this, reads this, saw it on our website, fitznews.com this week, got pissed off about it, as they should have. Dartes Ferguson Jr. This is an individual with multiple violent offenses on his record, not just arrests. We're talking convictions. 2015 and 2017, convicted of violent crimes. We're talking strong-arm robbery. I mean, these are serious Violent crimes, weapons charges. And so he is arrested in November of 2021 and charged with accessory after the fact to murder. Not long thereafter, that charge was upgraded to murder. So you got a violent criminal with a murder rap and yet inexplicably gets set free under con- conditions, bond conditions, okay. But here's the thing. Ferguson couldn't keep his nose clean. He repeatedly violated the conditions of his bond. And so prosecutors in the office of Ninth Circuit Solicitor Scarlett Wilson brought him into court, put him before Judge Price and said, Your Honor, there's this violent criminal who shouldn't have been on the streets in the first place. He has now repeatedly violated his bond. Let's put him back. And surprisingly, for once, Bentley Price agreed and made a decision to revoke Ferguson's bond. But then a funny thing happened. In the courtroom, the attorney for Mr. Ferguson, State Representative Leon Stavernakis, stood up and pitched a fit. No, Your Honor, no, this you can't do that, wink, wink. And I don't know what specific arguments may have been offered in support of letting this multiply convicted violent criminal facing a murder rap who repeatedly violated conditions of his bond what argument you want to make for letting that guy back out in the streets. But the thing about Stavronakis is he doesn't have to make that argument because he's the one 
who has taken credit for putting Price on the bench. He's one of the lawyer legislators who picks judges in this state. And conveniently, once Leon Stavernakis stood up, Bentley Price flipped and decided to grant this violent criminal the bond that he asked over the objection of the prosecutor, over the objection of the victim's mother who pleaded with him to put this guy behind bars where he belongs. It's amazing. That isn't justice, people. That is a judge looking at the person who appoints them and doing their bidding. And that is exactly what is wrong with this corrupt system. Now, are we going to see accountability on it? I don't know. We've been talking about this issue for years. For years, my news outlet has been calling out this systemic abuse of powerful lawyer legislators who go before the judges that they appoint and get selective preferential treatment on behalf of their clients, who more often than not are violent criminals who belong behind bars, not out on streets committing additional crimes. Will we ever see that accountability? I don't know, but if the Murdoch crime and corruption saga is ever, ever going to have an ending that creates some good, if there's ever some good to come from the tragic deaths associated with this story, if we're ever going to get a positive outcome from it, We've got to fix the system that enabled the Murdochs and that continue to enable institutional corruption and the erosion of public safety in the Palmetto State. All right, so we're talking about that corrupt system. We're talking about the pernicious influence of lawyer legislators, the corrosive influence of these folks who appoint the judges, who set their salaries, who can kick them off the bench if they don't like the rulings they make. Just a totally corrupting influence. But the guy at the center of it, who more than any other lawmaker wields that influence, a guy named Todd Rutherford. Rutherford is the South Carolina minority leader. He's been in that job for over a decade. Wields enormous power inside the state house, but he's also on that clique of lawyer legislators, the Judicial Merit Selection Commission. That is literally the group that decides who the judges are going to be. If they don't like you, they won't screen you out. They rig the elections in the judicial branch of government. So it's not just law, lawmakers electing these judges. There's this little group that gets together beforehand to figure out which ones they get to vote on. And Rutherford, a leader of that little clique. So no one in a better position to influence who the judges are than Todd Rutherford. But we've been talking about accountability in this episode and in recent episodes. And there may be some accountability around the bend for Todd Rutherford just this week. Our news outlet exclusively reported a joint state and federal investigation into Todd Rutherford. Now, is it related to the travesties of justice that we've seen, the miscarriages of justice due to his role as a lawyer legislator? Doesn't seem that way. From what our sources tell us, this is an inquiry which began a few years back when Rutherford carved about $600,000 out of the state budget for a trio of groups, and we're talking about money going to his mother-in-law, money going to his wife, money going to his former wife's business partner. I mean, he's keeping all the women in his life happy, apparently. On your dime, though, that's the problem. It's not the money he's making representing these violent criminals with gang ties, paying in cash, I'm betting. It's not that money he's spending. Nope, he's spending your money to fluff, fluff these, feather the nest of 
all these women in his life. 600 grand, people. It's a lot of money. Now, these earmarks, they're called earmarks, secretive budget items that get tucked away in the state's multi-billion dollar budget. There were questions raised about them at the time, and Rutherford shot back at his critics. He said they're not secret. They're only secret if you're not smart enough to know where to find them. So in other words, hide the ball and then call out the public for not being able to find it. That's, that's an interesting way of approaching it. But these, these earmarks got Rutherford in hot water, and according to our sources, this was the impetus of the investigation. Several lawmakers sent a letter to Attorney General Alan Wilson asking him to refer the matter to the State Law Enforcement Division for investigation. Wilson did that. An investigation was launched, and at some point, as we were talking earlier, in the story of David Ayler and the cell phone, at some point, the feds got involved. So this is a joint state-federal investigation. We were told Rutherford's bank records have been subpoenaed in connection with that inquiry. But it's looking not only at those earmarks, that $600,000 in secretive money hidden away in the state budget, but also allegations of campaign finance impropriety allegedly perpetrated by Rutherford. Those are the two things we know that the investigation is focused on. Again, beyond that, are there any other angles to it? We don't know yet. We're going to obviously continue to follow it. But I did reach out to Representative Rutherford. To his credit, Rutherford will always engage Whenever we reach out to him, he's always willing to talk. He told us there was no truth to any allegations about the earmark improprieties. He said all of his earmarks were on the record. He also said all of his campaign finance spending was on the record. And he said that he never once received an ethics violation, which, by the way, I found that interesting. Because just like Rutherford picks the judges in South Carolina, he's also on the ethics committee. And in South Carolina, guess what? Who do you think investigates ethics complaints against lawmakers? Would you be surprised to know that lawmakers investigate those complaints? So once again, folks, we've got a system in South Carolina where the outcome's never in doubt because the outcome is controlled by those in power, those who control those key committees, Rutherford being on the JMSC, as we mentioned earlier, and also on the House Ethics Committee. But he told us, you know, Will, he said, anybody can make something up. He said, this is just people making stuff up to be able to say that they heard it, and then it gets passed on to us. Well, Mr. Rutherford, we will see about that as this investigation continues to move forward. But for once, for once, folks, we've got an opportunity here. Pull the layer back to start digging into some of the, if the financial record part of this is, is accurate, that could be big because these lawyer legislators, we need to know where they're getting that money. We need to be able to hold them accountable for that because clearly they're spending our money, 600 grand of our money, I think we got a right to know who's paying their bills. All right, so if you didn't know from the seven kids I've got, I am pro-life. And there are certainly moments at the house where those kids get loud and beating the crap out of each other. I may think about rethinking that position, but no, I believe life begins at conception. And I believe life is the indispensable liberty. I think without that liberty, frankly, none of the other liberties really matter all that much. But the job of Fitz News on that issue, on any issue, is to host a conversation. And I'm part of that conversation. Dylan behind the camera, he's part of that conversation. And we have a right to cover this issue, but I do want to point out, we've got penises. We've got penises. And on the issue of abortion, I would humbly submit that the voice of women not only needs to be heard, I think it should take a front seat. I think it should take a front seat in that conversation. And so I'm very proud this week 
we published an extensive report on FitzNews.com that featured exclusively the perspectives of female legislators coming from all different points of the spectrum on this issue. Ten of those lawmakers, in fact, were on the record in our story. Some of them coming from kind of the center of the issue, some coming from the pro-choice side, some from the very strong pro-life side. So the reason I want to get these perspectives in the bloodstream this week is that if you follow the story, you know that last week the state Supreme Court upheld a six-week abortion ban that was passed earlier this year. Now, this is a reversal of a previous decision by the court to toss a remarkably similar bill, but some key words were, were amended in that legislation, some key definitions were added to that legislation, and so the Supreme Court ruled that this time state lawmakers had constitutionally discharged their obligations regarding regulating abortion. So that six-week ban is now the law of the land here in South Carolina. Now, here's the thing. I thought, and a lot of folks following this story thought, okay, well, that's it. That's it. We heard some rumblings from the pro-choice side that this was going to be challenged. The Supreme Court very quickly said, no, we're not rehearing it. And clearly, the U.S. Supreme Court has decided this is up to the states. So the state has now spoken. This issue is over, right? That's what I thought. But apparently... Not so much. This issue is just getting warmed up, people, and it's got serious political ramifications on multiple fronts. Now, the first part of the story I was referencing earlier about bringing in the perspectives of those female lawmakers, five of them talked to us about the need for a referendum. And these are five female lawmakers, three of them Republican, one independent, one Democrat. They call themselves the sister senators. There are five senators, different parts of the state, Katrina Sheely, Sandy Sin, Mia McLeod, Margie Bright Matthews, Penry Gustafson. Those are the five sister senators. Again, a diverse uh, bipartisan coalition of female lawmakers. But they were very pissed off about this court uh, ruling on abortion. They said the court soiled itself with this ruling, basically bent over for the state legislature. And they argued that this is a decision that should be left to the people of South Carolina as opposed to the people's elected representatives, apparently. And those sister senators, they are pushing for a referendum. That's right, a public vote on the abortion issue. And they're going to try to push for that in the coming legislative session. It's going to be a hugely contested issue. And also it's going to be incredibly difficult to pull off because, folks, for a referendum, just to get the public to have its say, you got to get two-thirds of both chambers to sign off on it. That is an incredibly high hurdle. So two-thirds of the Senate, two-thirds of the House— both of them have to sign off. And you'll be asking those two-thirds majorities, again, Republican-controlled, supermajorities in South Carolina, they would be asking those GOP supermajorities to sign off on a referendum that could conceivably weaken the current abortion law in South Carolina. So just an incredibly high hurdle for those sister senators as they try to undo the court's six-week ban. But that's just one angle. There's another angle that's emerging frankly, I think has a higher likelihood of success. And in that story, where we're incorporating, again, all the different perspectives of female legislative leaders on this important issue, I spoke with several conservative female lawmakers who told us they're pushing for a tougher ban. They want to ban not six weeks, not five weeks or four weeks or three weeks or two. They want to ban from conception. And they said they're going to push it whether or not Republican leaders like it or not. Now, in the middle of all this, 
Republican leadership who, frankly, they are done with this issue. You think we've got Murdoch fatigue. These Republican leaders, they got abortion fatigue. They are done talking about this issue. They don't want it to come up. And yet, it's the female lawmakers on different points of that political spectrum who are driving this debate. Again, on one side, pushing for a referendum that would do away with that six-week ban. On the other side, some of the conservatives pushing for an even tougher ban. So this issue, I thought, again, it was settled. Guess what? It wasn't. And not only that, not only are these female lawmakers fighting inside the legislative arena, but this is turning into a huge campaign battle. There are multiple Senate seats and House seats that are going to be won or lost based on abortion. In fact, we've been told that Senator Sheely, Senator Gustafson, they are the top two targets of conservative lawmakers for their, again, opposition to this six-week abortion ban. Meanwhile, you've got numerous seats in the House in the battle between the Conservative Freedom Caucus and the more central Republican establishment. Numerous seats are going to be impacted by this abortion debate. So we're not just talking about policy. We're not just talking about legislation. We're talking about an issue that can conceivably, again, impact that balance of power in the South Carolina legislature. As always, count on Fitz News. We've been covering the State House for years, people. Our sources there run deep. We will keep you up to speed on the very latest, not only on those legislative battles, but also on those important campaign trail battles as the issue of abortion, which many people thought was put to bed, clearly is going to once again drive much of the debate when the South Carolina General Assembly comes back in session next January. All right, that is a wrap for this week's edition of the Week in Review, another episode in the books from our new studio here. I want to thank our director of special projects, Dylan Nolan, for not only getting this thing done, but doing work while he's getting it done. I can't wait to see what we end up doing with this space. Again, it's all thanks to you. Your subscriptions enable our reporting, enable us to hold these folks accountable here in South Carolina and beyond. So if you haven't already, please, fitznews.com, go there, subscribe. It's only eight bucks a month. Help us hold those in power accountable. As we look forward to this coming week, obviously we're talking politics. I want to just remind everybody, check out our Palmetto Political Stock Index. Mark Powell and I put that out every Sunday morning. We had a ton of news last week with the big presidential debate. This week we'll be assessing the fallout, so be sure to check that out. Also, Fitz Files. If you haven't downloaded this podcast yet, go to Apple, go to Spotify, wherever you download your podcasts. A lot of you have been there already following the Rose Petal murder, but we dropped a new episode on a new case we're working just this week. The story, Death on the Tracks, a mysterious murder down in Dorchester County. You'll want to check that story out. And again, every week we're coming up with new cases to follow on Fitz Files, which again is another part of our broader effort to hold folks accountable and get justice for those who've been waiting for it. So check that out. Also, last but not least, I want to commend our Cali Lions. Callie, our researcher, reporter, she did a great story on some unclaimed funds in the South Carolina Treasurer's Office, even put a database in that story so you can check to see if you've got any of that $650 million. That's right, people, $650 million that the Treasurer's Office is holding on to in unclaimed funds. Check that out. See if you've got any money there waiting for you. Look forward to catching you next time. Big week ahead. As I mentioned earlier, we've got a big Murdoch press conference we'll be attending from the defense team as they weigh in on this jury impropriety that they've alleged. Look for Fitz News to cover that, and we will catch you next time on Your Week in Review.